Hey, y'all. Chris here. I'll be back with my usual episode of Brown Enough tomorrow, but today I'm excited to share a special treat with you. It's an episode of a podcast I was recently on called Some of My Best Friends Are. Harvard professor Khalil Gibran Muhammad and journalist Ben Austin are friends, one black and one white. They grew up together in the south side of Chicago. As adults, Khalil and Ben are still best friends, but they know that interracial friendships aren't going to solve the problems of a deeply divided country. On Some of My Best Friends Are, Khalil, Ben, and their guests have personal, political, and playful conversations about the absurdities and intricacies of race in America. I joined Khalil and Ben a few weeks ago to talk about my own racial awakening, which I attribute to the moment I learned the real James Bond, Porfirio Rubirosa, was Dominican. And I share what it means to me to be Latinx in a country where most conversations about race are split into just black or white. All right, here's my conversation with Khalil and Ben. I had a great time on the show, and I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. You can hear more of Some of My Best Friends Are wherever you get your podcast. Peace. I don't think whiteness is trying to take our color. They're trying to take our culture. Mm. They're trying to take, you know, mm. really the things that make us unique and vibrant and flavorful. It's all of these things. I'm Khalil Gibran Muhammad. And I'm Ben Austin. We're two best friends. One black. One white. I'm a historian. And I'm a journalist. And this is Some of My Best Friends Are. Some of my best friends are dot dot dot. <laughs> In this show, we wrestle with the challenges. And the absurdities. Of a deeply divided and unequal country. Khalil, oh my God, it is, uh, it's election day, you know. It is Armageddon day. It's Armageddon day. <laughs> and uh, I got a question for you. Yeah. Do you vote? Of course I voted. Not only did I vote, I voted early. No, no. I mean, do you just, do you just vote in general? Like, oh, are you do I vote? Like, I, I don't vote. What's going on here, man? <laughs> <laughs> do you think I'm one of those people? <laughs> I love voting on election day. I love going in there and seeing all the people volunteering. I love getting a sense of what's going on. Just like, it's a pulse of democracy in some way. It is. Yeah. My wife was an elected official. Uh, she ran in local school board elections. She won two out of three of them. And I will admit, before voting uh, for her for the first time, which was about a, a decade ago, I didn't really care about local elections. I mean, I didn't pay attention. And I think more than at any point in American history, certainly in the 20th century, the stakes of this country hang in the balance in what's happening locally all over the place for local municipal elections, for state yeah, elections. Yeah. And so it, today's the day to vote, folks. All of it matters. And if you listen five years later, it's also about going to be a time to vote. So it's almost always it. That's right. Man, what you just said is exactly right. And this has been accelerated in the Trump years. Mm -hmm. We all have our eyes on national politics. We are no longer thinking about what's going on locally, which gets us to our guest today. Mm. Christopher Rivas is, is somebody who is going to get us in some ways into Los Angeles politics. That's right. Yeah, because this guy it represents, in a way the future of the world. He is helping mm -hmm, us mm -hmm. to see the fullness of our humanity and what's at stake. Uh, he is an amazing author, 
actor, podcaster. He's got these two podcasts, Brown Enough and Ruby Rosa. He's got a, a one-man show that he put on called The Real James Bond Was Dominican. The Dominican seductor, the diplomat, the gigolo, the alchemist, the last living playboy. And he's also a network sitcom actor. Uh, he's been on a show called Call Me Cat. You picked me over Max with his perfect hair, chiseled jaw, and searing blue eyes. All right, so he also has this new book out called Brown Enough, True Stories About Love, Violence, The Student Loan Crisis, Hollywood, Race, Familia, and Making It in America. We devoured this book. Yeah, and, and, and part of what grabbed our attention immediately was that he identifies ta Coates uh, giving this talk at the Los Angeles Public Library. ta had become famous for this article about reparations in 2014, and then a couple of years later wrote a book that became a bestseller. And it was about the black-white story of the horrible shit that has happened to black people in this country and continues to happen. That's exactly right. So Chris gets up to the mic and he asks a question, and this is a question. Black and white, that's all I hear. Black and white. As a brown man, a Dominican, Colombian, Afro-Latino, in this world, where does that leave me in the conversation? Mm. And Tanahasi answers, not in it. Oh, stop. <laughs> You're not in it. He calls it my moment of awakening that made me realize, oh, shit, something's up here. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was cold blooded. When I read that, I was like, damn. Um, and I've interviewed Tanahasi yeah. <laughs> in in public, you know, in front of a big audience. And I he can be prickly about, you know, people saying, here you are, the super successful author. Why didn't you tell my story? Why didn't you tell a story that represents me? And he's just like, I mean, I've heard him basically say, you know, write your own book. And that's exactly what Chris does. <laughs> he writes his own book. He takes this moment yeah, yeah. as an occasion to say, you know what? I have power. I have agency over my own voice. And while I didn't always think I did, that's his awakening, the agency to tell his own story. And, uh, and we are grateful that he's done it because as much as I saw that moment, I was like, hmm, and like, is he really kicking ta Coates in the butt here and like making me think differently about it? And in the end, you know, this is the what's most powerful in the end. He really does help us understand how black and white are the pillars that uphold the erasure of brownness. He was saying, listen, in this country, the binary that we're stuck in is between black and white. And he was saying, you, you got you to gotta like redefine yeah, yeah. that. You got to change that story. It was like challenge issued. All right. Well, let's go to our interview with Chris. Hey, Chris Rivas. Thank you. We are so excited to have you on our podcast. You know, this great book that you wrote, Brown Enough, Khalil and I both dug it. We both read the whole thing. We're excited to talk about it. Talk to you about the struggle you're going through of, of being brown in the United States. Great. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> this is also partly a story that grows out of your own childhood, your own socialization within in a Dominican community in Queens, your own parents' immigrant story, and trying to make sense of the anti-blackness that exists within that community. And let's talk about this in incredible place you come from but it is also this very complicated experience, this personal journey around race itself. It, it took, what, 34 years to discover that where I lived was the actual representation of the world, in my opinion. 
You know, I think mm-hmm. we, we know Queens is one of the most diverse places in the world. And Jackson Heights, where my right. grandma lived, is literally, I think we've done the numbers, the most it diverse is, yeah. place <laughs> in the world. Yeah. Yeah. What a blessing that I had no idea. Mm. I had no idea that in that place was a pool of genius, a pool of brown and black genius, a pool of like literal beauty. Because they were never on the billboards. They were never on TV. They were never on screens. I didn't see my Dominican father. I didn't see my Colombian mother. Like I never saw Jackson Heights in that way. I never saw Queens in that way. I saw Beverly Hills in that way. I saw so many things that were not me and my community. I wanted to be like the kids on TV. And then my parents didn't want me to speak Spanish. I know that I felt embarrassed by it, but I didn't understand why I felt embarrassed that I didn't speak Spanish. I didn't understand why my, my dad was fighting with people in his family who called him, you know, a gringo, trying to be like the white people. Mm-hmm. In order to move ahead, in order to do the American dream and everything that came with that, my mom and dad thinking, we can buy a house. That's what Americans, that's what we do. That's what's going to get our kids this next level of, of life. You know, maybe they'll go to college, all of this. They stopped seeing as much of their family you know, certain parts of their family. I think the quote in my book is that my dad has after that moment is like, they don't matter. They're not the ones paying the bills. They're not the ones putting food on your table. They want to call me white because when we use the word white, yeah. really what my dad's cousin was saying is, what are you trying to have power now? You're trying to leave us behind. And I wanted to be an actor since I was a kid, y'all. Ever since I saw mm-hmm. Peter Pan on Broadway, you know, like I was just like, I was, I was invested in telling stories in that way. And one of them I love the most was James Bond. I mean, that's, that's me running around in my tidy whities with all my little Nerf guns strapped around me, mm. like pretending <laughs> to be on missions, pretending to be this white British dude. And it was as simple as like, how would my life have been different if I wasn't pretending to be some white dude, but I was pretending to be my pops, mm. myself, yeah. Yeah. Khalil, yeah. Any, you know, anyone else. Uh-oh. All right. Well, what's fascinating <laughs> about this desire is that the guy you're going after. So just unpack him a little bit. You know, it really started, I created this play and it's now a podcast about this Dominican man James Bond was based on. You got to tell us his name because it's an awesome name. Porfirio Rubirosa, but we call him Ruby. Rubirosa. Got it. I mean, let's just assume our listeners don't know him any more than you did. And I, I'll admit, first time I'm hearing about it. So tell us the interesting, the most interesting man in the world story. Yeah, so Porfirio Rubirosa is incredible. Truly the most interesting man in the world. (laughs) He was twice the richest man in the world. Wow. He was a diplomat for the DR. He lived in Hitler's Germany. He lived in Fidel's Cuba. He ran guns for the New York City mob into Cuba. He was best friends with Sinatra, Kennedy, the Rat Pack. You name it. Was he a playboy? Yes. They say the greatest living playboy of all time. I mean, slept with every major princess, (laughs) heiress, and waitress of the 40s and 50s. So this guy, this Dominican man, is this international playboy and, and super cool. And, and he befriends Ian Fleming, who writes the James Bond novels, which become the movies. And Ian Fleming is like, this is my guy. Ruby is who I'm going to base this character on. You discover that James Bond is based on this Dominican dude, and you just feel all kinds of pride, right? When I discovered Porfirio Rubirosa and that this man was Dominican, I went straight to Pops and I said, yo, you know about this dude? He said, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I said, yo, he's epic. Why don't you tell me about him? And he said, I didn't think it mattered. <laughs> and I was like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. All I wanted in my life were heroes. Like, 
why doesn't it matter? This is an epic person everyone should know about, not just Dominican. And then yeah, this, yeah. this makes me wonder, my grandma has property out there. Why don't you visit? Why haven't you been back in 30 years? Like, I don't want to talk about it. You know, all of this stuff. I go to my mom. Yo, ma, how come you never took me to Colombia? Well, we was busy here. We were here trying to give you this life. Look at your life now. Yeah. We call that striving. Striving. Right? I mean, that's, that's the immigrant striver's story, right? And the things yeah. we lose in that striving. They, they had their heads down. They were focused. Here's a question I have for you, Chris, because I've been thinking a lot about, you know, I, I'm like Khalil, this is the first I'm hearing about him. And I'm also thinking about this moment for you where you discover this person who you, you, you literally embody on stage. And there's also seems to me, and I'm asking this rather than saying it, that there seems to be something a little tragic about him too, in his own sense of identity and, you know, racial identity. Am I right about that? You're 100% right. I mean, he in the 40s and 50s was whitening his skin and got a nose job. And so, mm. so then talk about how this is the guy that is also like your coming out guy, you know, <laughs> like this is the weird moment. Do you sort of find affinity to him because he doesn't just capture pride, but all, your, all of your own confusion as well? Yeah, that's why I call him a warning sign. You know, I saw someone so desperate to be seen by whiteness, okay. mm. so desperate to be seen. He also tried to be an actor in Hollywood. He was gonna do a movie with Zsa Gabor. He was denied by the U.S. Immigration Service, like last minute. They were all set. He was getting acting classes from Humphrey Bogart. Humphrey Bogart, y'all. Like, that's me calling yeah. Daniel Day-Lewis and being like, yo, D, y'all hook it up. Yeah, like, <laughs> he was so desperate to be accepted by whiteness, not by his Dominicanness, right? Not by where he came from, by the things he wanted to be. He was never satisfied. You repeat some of these mistakes? I mean, you, you, you... Oh my gosh, like crazy. And the brown man in me was like, oh, is this why my manager told me to get a nose job? And is this why I did it? Oh, is this why my manager told me to cut my hair? Yeah. You do get on a sitcom, like a, a network sitcom after you get this nose job, right? I do, yeah. I mean, after I got the nose job, I started yeah. booking work left and right. And I have to wonder, am I a better actor mm -hmm. or is it because I look more, I look nicer? I look more approachable, you know, I look more... Yeah, nicer, nicer in quotes I, here. Yeah I, yeah, fit, I fit the standard. I fit the mold. The more you talk, I mean, the more remarkable it is to really hear in his life this story of cultural appropriation. It doesn't make any sense that most people, and maybe it's not most people, maybe it's just me and Ben and me, but like that, I think certainly in my own immediate circle, most of us haven't heard of this guy. And so cultural appropriation is as much about the erasure of people who are the actual doers of our society, right? Yeah, beautifully said. I mean, that's, that was another big tipping point for me was like, oh, whiteness is trying to take things from me, Christopher Rivas, trying to take my nose, my hair, my curls, literally, you know, mm. trying to take queens from me, but also what heroes has it taken from me? What warnings has it taken from me? Who else is out there that I don't know about? I want to know about the other amazing heroes we have. Brown heroes, black, like who else is out there that the narrative of whiteness controls, either takes or says, I'll, I'll let you have this one. I'll let you learn about this one. You know, which is so powerful in a time right now where we're banning books again. We're banning books in 2022. Humans should know about this man. Anyone who's been twice the richest person in the world, I feel like that's pretty cool. You know, like that's accomplishing something, yeah. regardless of how you got there. And so one of the things about Ruby's life that really stuck out to me on top of all this sort of epicness and sadness and wildness was like, homeboy was with a lot of white women. 
like a lot. <laughs> and it, something clicked in me, you know, like I was dating a white woman. Mm-hmm. And so I looked at this sort of, you know, white woman that I was literally sleeping next to. And I looked at my history of all the women I dated and I said, I need to do some work around this. And so mm. we broke up. You know, I, I didn't exactly say why. And, you know, I didn't was like, I'm having a racial awakening. I, like, I got to go. I can't do that. <laughs> like, I was, it was just a real like, it was a real like, it's not you, it's me, which is true. And then I went in search of my desires. I went in search of like, okay, every movie I've ever seen as a kid shows me some brown or black dude being saved by some white woman, right? Mm-hmm. Why have I thought that the hand I hold determines my worth more than my own hand? I really started figuring out what am I attracted to and why? And because I like to do things in a public nature, or I don't know if I like to do them, I think it's just how I... But you are a professional actor, come like, on. So yeah, you do like to do things in a, yeah. in a public matter. I think it's just how I meet myself. You know, if I write it down, it's like, it's, it's holding me accountable. And, mm-hmm. and so I wrote this piece in the Times that I titled, Please Don't Hate Me for Dating White Women. They called it, I Broke Up With My Girlfriend Because She Was White. It went insane. <laughs> it got translated in all these different languages. And it really opened the door to me asking bigger questions about how I moved through the world. Like that was a big in for me. Looking at dating and, and intimacy in that way and relationships was a big in to like, how am I moving through the world as a body of culture? And what power am I literally giving to, to whiteness? So listen, you know, this is a black guy and a white guy show, right? So here we are talking about our interracial friendship. We're best friends. You heard about the show. And we are the embodiment of literally the black-white binary that troubles this um, story that you tell. And you enter into this conversation in part by saying like, yo, enough, enough already. So do we have this wrong? Are we contributing to the problem, Chris? Help, help us figure out how to be better. You are not causing or keeping the problem going. That is the world. It is a binary world. It is a white black world. Before you even came into existence, before you were formed, like it has been Mm. a white black world. It has been a his her world. We are just now starting to really crack open the doors. And this goes way beyond race Mm -hmm. of what it means to embrace the middle space. We're making the space more full right now. So it's literally happening. It's more conversations like this. That's what needs to happen. Yeah. You're talking about this middle space, but you write in the book, you know, what is brownness? The vague but large gap in the middle where things are forgotten, don't exist, don't matter, or don't belong. What is brownness? A concept, everything between black and white, the global majority. And both that large and majority, you're not talking about a small number of people. We're talking about a huge number. You're in LA where over 50% of the people are Latino. Explain that. Like, How could such a large group be left out of the conversation? I do think there is more brownness in the world than anything else. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, this world has a lot of brown people in it. And I'm not just talking Latinos. More, more ethnicities and heritages and cultures and flavors than I can even think of off the top of my head. Yeah. I don't know how we all get left out, how it happened. I mean, yes, it's systemic and it happened and, and, and we're just, we're here now. And so what I can speak to is maybe hopefully towards the future and be like, all right, so how do we have more inclusive conversations, dialogues, awarenesses? Yeah. I, I want to stay with this for just a second longer because I think it's really important, like both to acknowledge that brownness is also a, about a physical appearance and also a kind of political project. 
And I want to share very quickly two examples from my own children. My wife grew up herself a little bit anxious about her blackness, uh, and partly because she spoke in such a way that, that other black kids teased her, you know, you're trying to be white. And so at some point, she kind of defined herself as Neapolitan. <laughs> and that matters because when we were raising our... I know Ben is like... <laughs> yeah, it is kind of crazy, right? But okay, nevertheless. So when it was time to be parents, our firstborn son named Gibran, Stephanie, like her instinct was to like acknowledge his brownness because he's, you know, he's like... Beyonce colored, right? Like that, you know, kind of a little shade darker than beige. And I was like, no, he's black. And so this little like debate between us manifests later on when we left this like super white college town in Bloomington, Indiana. And uh, we went to visit my mother who lived on the South Side of Chicago where I grew up. And we were walking on Michigan Avenue in downtown Chicago on the Magnificent Mile. And we were surrounded by the sights and sounds of the city. Everybody was there. And our son literally is like, oh, my God, there really are black people. And this is insane, right, Chris? Yeah. Yeah. Because here he, like, there's, the dude's name is Jabron Muhammad. Like, if nothing else, he's like some, some, like, black Arab dude in the making, right? Like, you know, he can't, he's nothing but brown or black or something. But he's our child. And somehow we had missed the fact that in his own socialization, he was seeing his face as brown, but the political stakes of him being black weren't clear to him yet. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about. Like there are, the whole world is made up of brown people more than any other like physical reality. And yet the stakes of our politics internationally are like choosing white or black. Yeah, we've, choosing is a good word. I mean, we could spend all. whole... A whole hour on choice. Yeah, man. That's what we're here for. We are here to... (laughs) You want us to make a choice. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about brownness as a different choice. Assuming you have the choice to make, right? We talk about privilege a lot. And that's one of the great definitions is the ability to have choice. I don't think whiteness is trying to take our color. They're trying to take our culture. Mm. They're trying to take, you know, Mm. really the things that make us unique and vibrant and flavorful and colorful, you know, like it's, it's all of these things. And when you say take, what do you mean? Can, what do you, because okay. when I think of assimilation and I think of pretending and I think of choices, like what's going to allow me to survive literally physically, what's going to allow me to thrive, possibly move up a social financial ladder and the dangers that come with pretending and assimilation. I think it's trying to take bodies of culture's culture and make it one way, you know, make it our way, make it the white way, make it the acceptable way. And so this idea of of choice, when do we as bodies of culture wake up to the choices we've been making? You know, that's a whole version of racial awakening is, have I been making my own choices or have I been brainwashed, hypnotized into thinking I'm making my own choices, but really I'm just trying to survive. All right, we are here with Chris Rivas. We've been talking about brownness. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Los Angeles, where Chris lives now. We're going to talk about a local scandal about racism, this tape that was released, and how it reflects on the national stage and national politics. (laughs) 
Hey, we're back with Chris Rivas on some of my best friends are. Chris, you know, here we are, midterm elections, politics is roiling the country, and you live in Los Angeles. And, you know, so in October, the scandal happened, this tape was released, and we want to just sort of unpack it a little bit because it seems so relevant to your work and to this conversation. Three Latino city council members in Los Angeles are caught on tape including the, the council president, Nuri Martinez, and also a Latino labor leader. So there are four people talking. And this conversation actually happens in 2021, but uh, the tape is just uh, released and then run by the LA Times uh, this year. They're talking all kinds of anti-Black stuff and both like actual Black people, like African-Americans, but also people of darker skin. So yeah, let's, let's, let's listen to a clip, because uh, this this is, is, there's some really strong language here and uh, our listeners should hear it's like black and brown on this float, and then there's this this white guy with this little black kid who's misbehaved. The kid is bouncing off the effing walls on the float, practically tipping it over. There's nothing you can do to control him. They call someone's kid a black kid a monkey. A changuito. Thank you. I wasn't going to even try it. Uh, they talk about working class immigrants from Oaxaca who live in Koreatown as little, short, dark people. Call them dirty. She the calls them dirty, I'm pretty dirty. sure. Yeah. And, and then even like the progressive DA, this guy, George Cascone, you know, they, they sort of dismiss him as somebody, he's with the blacks. So yeah, man, I want to throw it back on you. Like, explain, like, was, did it surprise you? Why didn't it, you know, tell us about it? My first thought is, you know, thank God. <laughs> thank God that tape was released, right? Like, it's not like, how dare they? It's like, of course they. Yo, the Latina, Latinidad, Latine, X, E, whatever people's preferred, you know, identity pronoun is. Latinos have so much racism and colonization mm. and white supremacy deep, 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 deeply braided into them. Deep. It didn't surprise me because white supremacy is not an American thing. Mm. It is a global thing. Latinidad is one of the bigger sufferers of it. And, and what does that mean? I'll start in my own story before I speak about someone else's. Dominicans, there's people on the same land, the same island, similar dark skin, right? My grandma's black, y'all, but she ain't black. God forbid you call her black, but she's black, right? No, they're black. I'm Dominican, right? That's in my blood. And they're they are being the, those Haitians is, is when you say they are. They or, or anyone black. Black people are black. I'm Dominican. You know, and so you have Trujillo. Who, ha- who is Haitian, has Haitian ancestry, baby powdering his face, you know, identifying with himself with whiteness, killing the black people that he's associated with. So I'm just going to speak to my own blood. Yeah, man, I hadn't, I hadn't even thought about Trujillo and his Haitian background. Uh, yeah, so he's, he's the president of the Dominican Republic uh, for like 31 years, from like 1930 to 1961, and massacres something like an estimated 12 to 30,000 Haitians uh, under his rule. It's just, it's just unbelievable. Uh, so that's your Dominican side. Uh, what about your Colombian side? Colombians have one of the largest slave trades in the world. That don't come up a lot. Like uh, a lot came to America, a lot went to Colombia. And, you know, and so you go to places like even now, Argentina, Mexico, Costa Rica, who's on the ads? It's white people. You know, it's white, it's white Latinos, but it's white people, 
Like it's white people selling you products. It's white people on the shows. It's white people on the telenovelas. It's white people on the news. I just did an event for, you know, NBC Telemundo and a woman genuinely asked me, how can we, how can we show up better for our community? And I said, yo, you know, you don't have one Afro Latino on your staff. And what was their response? You know, I, don't, I mean, <laughs> it was just nothing. Yeah. Like, I was like, <laughs> I asked it. I, I, the guy who hired me was like, uh, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're talking about colorism, right? Like you're you're talking about a deeply, deeply rooted in lots of Latino cultures. And that's what you feel was sort of at the root of what was going on in this conversation that was outed between these uh, city council yeah, members. Yeah, that's what was happening in L.A. And none of them, you know, deserve to sort of be in places of power. But also what they're associating with power is their whiteness or their non-dirtiness, you know, or their closer to whiteness so they're better. And no, they don't deserve to be in places of power. But, you know, thank God that that we know how these people are moving through the world and thinking. This is why you're thankful this came yeah. out. That's what you meant. Yeah, that's why I'm thankful yeah. this came out. Yeah. Uh, so we can have these conversations and hold these people accountable. But I care less about holding them accountable and more about people listening to it and holding themselves accountable. Asking, do I think right. this? How have I participated in this? How am I participating daily in white supremacy and in anti-blackness? Because we all have a hand in it. Yeah, that's one of the things I think, I mean, to your credit in the book, is such a powerful personal story about your own journey because you don't pull any punches in terms of how you yourself have come to see your own grandmothers scolding you for bringing home a black girlfriend at some point and recognizing the obvious and subtle ways that all around you, people were saying, get closer to whiteness, get closer to whiteness. That's that's where power rests. When I heard about this story of the Latino council members and the labor leader in, in LA, and I even brought it up in class, you know, teaching this semester in a class called Race and Racism and the United States as a Global Power, I was also hoping my students would appreciate that honorary whiteness is driving our electoral politics. What do you mean, Khalil? Yeah, honorary whiteness, meaning people who are not European descendant, but who either have the category bestowed upon them. But in this moment of our midterm elections, partly what we're seeing is that this large Latino population, which is the largest, at least by census, demographic of non-white people in America, and will be the majority population in something like a generation, is also at war in a sense with itself over whether it's gonna choose to follow the path to power laid by white people, or it's gonna come up with something different. Do I have that right? Or do you have a different take on it? Because I'm really interested in these ideological and political divisions within Latino communities. Your parents are in Miami, it's Cuba, the American based. I mean, it's like, this is some real stuff we're wrestling with, Chris, politically. I mean, the words you said that I really love is the war with ourselves. There is some serious, serious awakening and radical honesty and transparency that needs to take place in, inside of the Latinidad community. Mm-hmm. And I want to share something that I, I had just learned this recently. So for the Brown Enough podcast, we recently interviewed Dr. Saudi Garcia. She said something I'd never heard before. She said, if you, Latine, X, E, whatever, you know, if we use the word Latin before anything, We are identifying with whiteness. Mm. We are all Afro-Caribbean or Afro-Latino. Like we need to identify with the other half before we identify with the whiteness. We are indigenous beings of the land. And then all of this sort of colonization and Spain and this and this, other things happened. 
you know, that sort of separated us and slavery, right? Bringing, you know, slaves in and adding all this to the mix. Every time we put in Latin anything, regardless of what you put on the end of that, you are identifying with that whiteness in you. Adding more to that internal struggle that I don't think people even know they're fighting. They're trapped yeah. inside of. You know, I, I do. I quote it because it holds up. We've all seen The Matrix. Like, it's hard to wake up. <laughs> you mean the the movie starring Keanu Reeves yeah. and Larry Fishburne, who went to your high school, yeah. right? Talented, <laughs> unlimited, right? Yeah. Your community. It's hard to wake up, y'all. It's hard to wake up. And Chris, this is amazing. I'm listening to you and thinking about sort of terminology. And it also, like in, in electoral politics, it also cuts the other way. Like Khalil asked you about your, your parents who moved from Queens to Miami. And, you know, a lot of us think of sort of like Latino or, or Latinx, like as a monolith, like here are these, this group of people. And part of this conversation is we're talking about within it, it also being so varied and so different. And then you're also sort of spinning it another way and saying like, and the term is also sort of a, a kind of forgetting. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, can you talk a little about like Khalil sort of was talking about the, the, the differences within it and even like an electoral way, like your parents are in this now sort of Cuban Republican stronghold of Latino politics in Miami. We got Democrats and Republicans, okay? And for a long time, Republicans have really been power. We can call it power, and then we can call everything, you know, Democrat, everything else. Mm -hmm. And you take a place like Miami, it's little Cuba, except they're the ones in power there. They run a show. And so they are Republican because they are white. They are the white ones. They are the powerful ones, right? That's why you have, you go to Miami right now, you'll see to this day, converted ice cream trucks, you know, yelling Trump, screaming it wow. down the street, right? They're the wow. ones in power. And so Miami's, a, I mean, don't, like we can't even get started on a place like Miami. Uh, they, they're, they're so lost in the sauce, you know, like they're, they're too far gone. You come to a place like Los Angeles, so many Latinos here don't even realize that they have power. They're not even voting. They don't realize how much space they take up in the conversation. Mm -hmm. And I've been having this conversation a lot. And this is why I think the city council conversation is actually important. I'm so glad you turned it this, that way. And I've been thinking about the scandal at the LA City Council in exactly those terms and trying to make sense of it. And, and it was enough of a scandal like on the local level that even Biden felt like he had to weigh in and, and demand that they resign. I mean, the president of the United States had to step in. And maybe if the, the midterms weren't coming up, he wouldn't have done that. But I think I'm hearing what you're saying. And you both of you could correct me if I'm wrong about this. But in some ways, the racism that was exposed, which is really ugly, also sort of masked the other thing that was going on that was revealed, is that these four power brokers didn't really give a fuck about people in the community, and especially working class people. I mean, they were talking about holding power and retaining power. And you're talking about like from the bottom up, they were figuring out ways to negotiate, to keep themselves in power. But they were dismissing people from Oaxaca, as you said, like, you know, I don't know what village they're from. They just showed up here. And, and you know, and they were willing even to cede certain districts to keep a black council member in place so that they could stay in power. And that kind of like coalition building just for itself this is what a political machine does. A machine, a political machine reproduces itself and isn't about sort of lifting anybody up. That might be a, an offshoot of it. Is that right? Like, like, is that what you're saying? Like, this is, uh, it was exposed that they didn't care about the, uh, about the people in, in the community. They are self-serving. 
you know, like that the conversation literally proves they're self-serving, but I do think that that conversation is happening in more rooms than a, than a recorder has been. Hell in. yeah. Hell yeah. You write about this in your book, you know, about like actual progressive politics, you know, because I don't know. I mean, Khalil, we could, we could hash this out a little bit. Like, yeah. you know, here we have this democratic party. It's like, what does it actually stand for? And so, I mean, you write in your book about student debt and you write about, you know, healthcare debt. You write about the, these issues that are affecting real people who like can't afford the country in the way it's set up. And Democrats are the worst storytellers in the world right now. <laughs> in the world. That's huge. <laughs> they're, they're horrible storytellers. And Republican Party is an unbelievable storyteller. And something I want to recommend that every human read is by Jose Ortega y Gasset. Oh, yeah. The Revolt of the Masses. He wrote this in the 20s. Homeboy <laughs> he did some prophesizing. He separated the world into two people, minorities and masses. Minorities had nothing to do with ethnicity or race. Minority was, if you are a surgeon, you are a minority. You needed training. Like, that's, that's legit. Like, not everybody can come in and cut out your kidney. He was like, there are things where you need training, and then there are masses. And he said, one day, something will come along that will allow the masses to have a microphone and the, they will start to think they are minority. Mm. And he said, that will be the most dangerous day in the world because people will start gathering around the things they disagree on more than the things they agree on. There will be so much power around what we don't agree on versus what we agree on. The Republican Party is so good at gathering around disagreements. Mm. Like they push it, push it, push that agenda so hard and it galvanizes it galvanizes more than any democratic event or party has ever galvanized anything, right? Because they're just like, no, 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 no. That's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. They're trying to take from you. Yeah, I have, I have genuine <laughs> issues with, with, with the storytelling of politics right now. The Republican Party is really good at convincing them that they're actually working for the people. Sure. Yeah. yeah. We are going to take another quick break. We'll be right back. I want to come back to brownness where we started this conversation as a metaphor for reimagining how we should think about what we owe each other. And in a way, uh -oh. Chris, I'm really, I'm really just, I'm taking what I took from your book and, and putting it back to you, trying to say like, this is how I understand how you want us to reconsider who's in this conversation. And you use that as a really powerful insight into why, why me, the black guy, needs to pay closer attention to you, Chris, your story, and the, the millions of other stories like it. And why Ben, the white guy, is in a way in a position to bestow power on the rest of us by virtue of the privileges that come with his whiteness. So what you also tell us in this story of brownness is that the grasp of power grows out of the development of capitalism. And that capitalism has created austerity for everybody. Austerity for the quality of life you live, austerity for your access to life-saving treatments or just a regular checkup at the doctor called healthcare, austerity for the affordability of a freaking education that everyone deserves, 
austerity or, as Robert Reich, the former Clinton labor secretary, said, inequality for all. That's what you get with, with Kaplan. Mm. That is the story you tell. And so, so round us out with how appropriating brownness for ourselves is also about reclaiming what we owe each other in a society that should no longer be about austerity. I'm going to round you out by using the donut metaphor. Okay. And donut economics says the world uh, right now is an arrow. The arrow must go up. The arrow must go up by any means necessary. In our world, right? Yes, I talk a lot about capitalism and capitalism is dangerous. You know, like it has been dangerous ever since, you know, we, we, we took land from people and then they made them work on the land we took and then paid them a living that they could only spend that money at our stores so that we never lost any money. We have an arrow that must go up at any means necessary. By any means necessary means at the cost of Khalil, Chris, and even Ben. Like by any means necessary means like there is a cost, except that cost is often taken from bodies of culture more than other bodies. But the arrow must move up. The stock market must rise. We must, right? The people who created the system of power must stay in power and the arrow must move up. Also, it relates to Republicans, right? They've sold that the arrow is shifting down and we need, I will keep it up. I will keep the arrow up. Me. That's right. Donut economics says we want to stay in the, in the flesh of the donut. If you go towards the inside of the donut, you're going to steal from the land and from the people. If you go to the outside of the donut, you're also going to steal from the land and the people. Like, what does it look like to stay in the flesh, to think in a more reciprocal way? And so when I think of brownness, I think of the donut. I think, you know, we're, we're, in the, we're in the meat. We're thinking in a more reciprocal, more expansive way. We're thinking of a less this, that, a less more, 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 and a less, I get more breath. Like I wanted to take a deep breath there. I think. We heard it. Yeah. <laughs> when we think in a more expansive, generous way, we realize like I get to take a nap. I don't got to be on this race for more, 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 this race that was sold to me by whiteness. I don't have to be the arrow. I get to be here having these conversations, these generous conversations. Like I don't have to, to meditate, keep, right? I, I get to meditate. I don't have to keep proving it. I don't have to hustle, hustle, yeah. hustle on a race that I was told like I had to work extra hard just to even start. Nah, screw your race. I'm hopping off the wheel. Like, so, so brownness to me is a more expansive, delicious way of living because it includes more of us, not less of us. And it's less fighting for the arrow, mm. Because an arrow is skinny as hell and only a couple of people are going to get it. But the donut is fat and we can all eat from the donut. Fat donut. So, hey, listen, this is, this is going to be our, uh, our new show, spinoff. Fat donuts. <laughs> the donut. the fat three donut. of us. That's, that, I love donuts. That, I, would, I would eat donuts yeah. with y'all. I love. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we'd have no, to man, shoot I'm the show we, once a month. Meta, I metaphorically and <laughs> literally. Yeah. We, we're no, going to start a new show. We're going to have a franchise. We're going to we'll be in LA, Miami, New York, <laughs> Chicago, fat donuts. It's going to be yoga and donuts. <laughs> All right. Well, listen. Chris. You've taught me a lot. I, I just own it for myself. Really appreciate it. Same here. Same here. Man. How well you've told your own story. The book is really great. And, you know, we just look forward to you telling us more stories and teaching us more about a different way to live with each other in the future. Thank you. Well, I'm really, uh, I'm really grateful for y'all. I appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. Thank you so much. Thank you, Thank you, Chris. I'm so glad, Khalil, that we got to talk about Los Angeles today. 
You know, Mike Davis, the urban historian, died uh, in October. His city of Quartz about about the city definitely shaped my way of thinking about how we think about cities. Yeah, yeah, and and about America yeah. and and writing about it. It was a 1980 story about like hyper surveillance. He had a chapter called Fortress America. It was really about a kind of dystopic vision of fear and the other, and how you know white elites were just locking it down to for their own benefit and privilege. So prescient, so prescient, and you know we're talking about Los Angeles today, and we're talking about this scandal with the local officials, and it feels like we're also talking about the Democratic Party, right? We are the Democratic coalition on this recording today, you know, black, brown, and progressive white. And <laughs> we are the Rainbow Coalition. At, well, yes. well, and and Los Angeles showed this, you know, in this scandal, like how precarious this this coalition is, how like how much infighting, and uh, how we don't really know how to like you know hold it together. I really love you coming back to this point because here we are on election day, and the future is uncertain, and the point of Chris's whole story, his life as he's lived it, his commitment to the arts as a way to express his ideas, and this book that he's written as a kind of call to action for all of us is to recognize that living in a world that has been defined by color as a way to hoard power for some uh, at the expense of others is the moment that we're living in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is a moment of white replacement theory. I mean, it is a moment where our political parties cannot separate themselves from this existential threat. And, uh, you know, we don't know what the future holds, but we know that every day matters at this moment. And having Chris help us make sense of yeah. this is, is really valuable. And you're right. So here we have this amazing storyteller on the show. And, you know, some story about a deeper mission for equity, which is escaping us which we're not talking about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and Chris brings yeah. that up. That came up in this recording in Los Angeles. And, you know, it's what we talked about today. I think that no matter what comes uh, in the not too distant future, we have the right people to help us figure it out. And, uh, and I know I'm going to be good because I got you, man. I got you, man. You mean to figure out how to like do this podcast? Uh, yeah, we, we... <laughs> whatever. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll see you on the other side. All right. Love you. Yeah. Love you, man. Some of My Best Friends Are is a production of Pushkin Industries. The show is written and hosted by me, Khalil Gibran Muhammad, and my best friend, Ben Austin. It's produced by John Asante and Lucy Sullivan. Our editor is Jasmine Morris. Our engineer is Amanda K. Wong. And our executive producer is Mia LaBelle. At Pushkin, thanks to Letal Molad, Julia Barton, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, John Schnars, Greta Cohn, and Jacob Weisberg. Our theme song, Little Lily, is by fellow Chicagoan, the brilliant Avery R. Young, from his album, Pubman. You definitely want to check out his music at his website, AveryRYoung.com. You can find Pushkin on all social platforms at Pushkin Pods, and you can sign up for our newsletter at Pushkin.fm. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. And if you like our show... Please give us a five-star rating and a review. And listen, even if you don't like it, give it a five-star rating and a review. And please tell all of your best friends about it. Thank you.
don't know if I put this in the book, but I but I reference it a lot. You know, Howard Zinn and like a mm-hmm. People's History of America says the biggest trick. W- not in the book. Oh, not in the book. <laughs> not in Uh-oh. the book. <laughs> the- Khalil has memorized the whole book. He knows. So there's nothing you can you can't get anything past him. Not in the book. Se- third printing. You almost wrote yeah. it on page 17, but you put didn't. it in the third printing. 